Well, good morning again, Missio Church. Welcome. Glad to see you all. My name is Bernie. I'm one of the elders uh, on staff here. It's a joy to be able to um, worship together as God's people, be called together on the Lord's Day um, to uh, exalt his name, set aside this time to focus our thoughts on him and how great he is. Um, we're coming to the time of our service now where we're going to open the word. And um, if you're just visiting with us, um, we've been working our way over the last uh, three weeks through a, a short little series um, we're calling The Christ of Christmas as we um, think about Advent, the, the coming of Christ, um, and prepare for uh, his second Advent, his second coming. Um, and this is a, a bit of a departure from what we typically do here. We are um, in the midst of, um, other than this series, uh, a series on the Psalms, working our way chapter by chapter through the first book of the Psalms. And so um, on the flip side in the new year, um, Lord willing, we will continue that series um, going chapter by chapter through the book of Psalms. But we're um, looking this morning at the Christ of Christmas, and just to kind of catch you up where we've been, we started three weeks ago with uh, just thinking about the title, Christ, which, which is not a name but a title that means anointed one, and, and that uh, title points to the fact that Jesus is the great prophet, the great priest, and great king. And then the week after that, we, we considered the fact that this Christ, this Jesus, is truly God. It's not merely just a human prophet, not merely just a, a great priest or, or, or somebody that guides his people. Jesus is truly God. And then uh, last week we considered the fact that um, not only is Jesus truly God, um, but as we just sang about in a few songs, Jesus is truly human. He took humanity upon himself. He humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant, by, by becoming one of us so that he might identify with us and make a worthy sacrifice for us. Um, so this morning we're going to look at the fact that in light of these things, we must declare that Jesus is utterly unique. Utterly unique. So if you would, bow your head and pray with me. Father, we are again grateful for this gift, this time when we can turn to your word and hear you speak to us. Not just um, hearing human words, but hearing your word in the scriptures. Thank you for that. And I pray that you would clearly reveal your son to us. Reveal his worth, reveal his beauty, capture our hearts. Father, I pray that your word would do that for which you are giving it this morning. Glorify yourself, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Now, Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, my family, perhaps like some of yours, over the next week or two, will be traveling to see some family, and we are headed to Pittsburgh. Now, this trip to Pittsburgh, there are multiple ways to get there. We could hop on 81 and head straight south to Carlisle, home of Billy and Michael Owens, and then head west and and land right in the city of Pittsburgh. Or... Uh, like we typically do, we could head on uh, the New York State Thruway, I-90 West, and then hit I-79 South, which drops you straight down into the city. If we didn't like either of those ways, and we wanted a more scenic route, perhaps we wanted to spend some more time in the car with our kids, <laughs> we could head down to Cortland, hop on 86, and wind our way over to 15 South, and then Uh, just get lost in the Pennsylvania State Forest and eventually, hopefully, arrive at our destination, everybody intact. Many roads, many options. Similarly, there are many ways to get a cup of coffee. Uh, I'm sure many of you, like me, this morning had a cup or cups of coffee, right? Um, You could uh, put the grounds in the drip pot, push the button, wait a few minutes, and it all trickles down, and you pour it out. Or perhaps some of you, you know, you're a little, little snobbier. Uh, that's okay. It's great. Uh, you go the French press route, and you, you throw the grounds in there, and then you pour some boiling water over, and you wait five minutes, and then you press down, and, and you've got that cup of joe. Maybe some of you are just unbelievably snobby, and you do pour-overs at home, right? The little funnel with the grounds, pour-over, weigh it, all that. Or maybe some of you are just like, no, 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 I'm going to my favorite coffee place and asking the the gentleman or the lady for some coffee, right? But the the point is, all sorts of ways to get your caffeine fix in the morning. What I'm saying is, there's more than one way to skin a cat, which is really just a slightly disturbing way of communicating there are numerous ways to do one thing, to get the same result, to to have the same outcome in the end. No one way is correct. I mean, you might prefer one way, but no one way is proper or right. I mean, who would say the proper way to get to Pittsburgh from Syracuse is? No. No one way is the way. So what I want to ask this morning, in light of this almost, almost universal truth, is can we say, as the church, that Jesus is utterly unique? Can we say he is the only way to God? The only way to the Father. Aren't there like the road trip and and like the coffee, aren't there many ways? Can we be exclusive when it comes to this particular claim? And I want to get at that question by first asking you this. What about getting rid of a, a sickness or illness or disease? Is a laxative, a good solution to an illness? Well, 
kind of depends what your problem is, doesn't it? Otherwise, you may have another problem you need to fix on top of the problem you didn't fix, right? You've, you've got a new issue. You see, in order to understand if something is a solution to a problem, you've got to identify the actual problem. You need to identify what the actual problem is in the first place. And so I again ask the question, is Jesus the only way to God? Is Jesus the only access we have to the Father? And the answer is, it depends on what the problem is. Right? What's the problem? What's, what's, why doesn't everybody have access to God? What's keeping us from God? What keeps human beings, men and women, children, what keeps us from God? What's the issue that needs to be addressed? And the scriptures are crystal clear. Our sin keeps us from God. We are sinful creatures and God is holy. The, the problem isn't that God's unloving. No, 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 far from it. He is love. He's the very definition of love. But his very nature, his holy nature, prohibits us from entering his presence because we are sinful creatures. First John, um, that, that Josh read from, if we kept reading, it says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. No darkness at all. So we as impure people cannot have access to God. We can't enter his presence. That's the problem. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. I want to look at this. I think this is a, a really good description of the heart of humanity um, apart from God. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. You can find that on, find that on page 5 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. Genesis 6, 5. Listen to this description of humankind. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention, only evil continually That's humanity's problem. That's why we don't have access to the creator God. And, and the problem isn't just that, hear me out, that um, we do bad things on a daily basis. It, it's not that we deal out a biting comment to a coworker or to a family member. It's not that, um, that we fudge the truth to make ourselves look good or fudge the truth to, to cover up something so that we don't look bad. It's not that we look longingly at another man or another woman who's not our spouse. If, if that were the case, if that were the problem, then what the, the solution would be stop doing those things. Like, let's quit those things, cold turkey, and then... Problem solved, right? Just be better, do better. But our problem isn't sins. It's sin. We actually sin. We do these things on a daily basis. 
We sin because we are sinners. We disobey God because we have a corrupt nature and distorted inclinations in our mind and in our heart. We have those inclinations. That's our heart. Romans 5 talks all about this. And I, w- I want you to see this, so turn with me to Romans chapter 5. But it, but it talks about this sinful inclination and this, this bent that we have, this, this nature that we have, this predicament that we had, um, that we're sinful apart from and before we have actually done any of these things. Romans chapter 5, you can find it on page 942 of your pew Bible. Romans 5. Look at verse 19 with me. It starts out, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. One man disobeyed, and many were made sinners. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the first man, Adam. Adam sinned, And because of his sin, you and I are sinners. We have a a, a corrupted nature, an inclination and hostility against uh, and towards God. Back up just one verse. Look at verse 18. Look at what this says. Therefore, as one trespass, that's, that's a word for sin, as one trespass, led to condemnation for all men. Wait, what's he talking about? Adam's sin. Adam's sin. Because of Adam's sin, you and I are condemned because now we have a nature, an inclination that's hostile towards God. Our inclinations are not for God. They are for anything but God. So our problem is that we are sinful, and the problem isn't even the things we do, it's us. It's, it's not our sins, it's our sin. It's not primarily our actions, but our nature that needs a fundamental transformation before we can have access to God. See, sin is nothing less than a fundamental opposition and hostility towards God that then expresses itself in actual rebellion against the law of God. It's that opposition and hostility toward God that then comes out in the day-to-day things as sin, as breaking the commandments. Friend, do not believe the lie that, you know, everyone sins a little, but down deep, most people are, are really good by nature. It's simply not true. It's not what the scriptures declare. We saw it in, in Genesis 6. We saw it in Romans 5. Don't, don't believe the falsehood that as long as you aren't the worst of the worst, and, and you, you know who the worst of the worst are, you know what they do, we see them online, we, 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 we hear them in the news reports. As long as you're not one of those, the worst of the worst that do the most heinous things, God's going to accept you. Don't believe that lie, friend. 
Because what the scriptures declare is that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. If God were not holy, then sin would not be a big deal. But the Bible trips over itself to tell us about God's holiness and grandeur and beauty and majesty. And it's in light of that that we understand how significant, how grotesque, how disgusting sin actually is. So we said, well, is Jesus the only way to God? Well, it depends on the problem. And we've said that the problem is sin. So in light of our identification of sin as the actual problem, let's ask again the question, is Jesus the exclusive way to the Father or are there many paths to God? One faithful pastor wrote this. He said, the mortal failure of the religions of the world, Christianity accepted, is that they do not take sin seriously enough. Other religions teach that people can become better on their own. Somehow, some way, we can work our way back to God. We can keep the Torah. We can observe the eightfold path that leads to nirvana. We can obey the five pillars of Islam or become one with the universe. If there is a hell at all, well, we might get time off for good behavior. You see, friend, you and I, we don't need to stop doing bad things and become better people. That is not, please hear me, that is not the Christian message. If, if you've been taught or you believe that that is the Christian message, be better, do better, no. You see, because sin is the problem and sin defines who we are. Because of that, the scriptures tell us we have earned the death penalty. The wages of sin is death. Paul tells us in Romans 6, the wages of sin, the, think about the paycheck, you get a paycheck at the end, the paycheck for sin is death. So who or what is the answer for this? And you know the answer. Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is the only Answer. I want you to see this. Look with me at John chapter 14. You'll find that on page 901 of your Pew Bibles. 901 of your Pew Bibles. John chapter 14. John records Jesus' teaching here. And this is what he says beginning in verse 4. He's talking with his disciples and he says, And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
You see, if we were to read back into um, John 13, Jesus has just told his disciples about his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then his departure, his ascension to sit seated on his throne with the Father. And his disciples are a little nervous about this. They're a little worked up. They're a little anxious and concerned. And Jesus says, fellas, don't worry because you're gonna come with me someday. You're gonna follow me there. But then we, we, we read what Thomas said, like, whoa, Jesus, hold on. I, we don't know where you're going. How, how can we know the way? And then Jesus teaches them at least two things here, and I want you to see what he teaches them. Positively, Jesus tells them, and he tells us, that he uniquely reveals the Father, God, to people. He uniquely reveals the Father to people. What's the path to God? Jesus is the way. I am the way. What's the truth about God? I am the truth. How are we assured of eternal life? Jesus is the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you know Jesus, he says, you know my Father. If you know Jesus, If you've trusted in Jesus, you know the Father because Jesus has revealed the Father. From now on, if if you know Jesus, you, you know the Father. But then negatively, Jesus warns us about the futility of other so called paths to God apart from himself. He says, uh, look at it with me. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. That means the teachings of the Buddha, the the religious uh, instruction of any other religion do not lead us there. They do not provide that. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Those other paths, those other roads, they're dead ends. Literally, they lead to death. They are dead ends. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. It's not just here. The apostles continually taught this. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. You'll find that on page 912 of your pew Bibles. Page 912, Acts chapter 4. Verse 5 says this. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? He's talking about, we read back up in chapter 3. 
There was a man that never had use of his legs, even from birth. And Peter came in the name of Jesus and healed him. And the man got up and walked. So he's asking, by what power, by what name do you do this? Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. But he continues. Listen to what he says. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So here is Peter explaining to some really upset religious leaders that a man healed in and by the power of the name of Jesus that, that, that's how he's healed, but more amazing than that, more amazing than his ability to remedy, remedy present suffering, to heal the physical body, Peter goes on to explain, Jesus is utterly unique because there is salvation in no one else. He is the sole source of salvation. God's saving power is exercised exclusively through Jesus and no one else. There are not many ways, but one. In Galatians 2, Paul gives us a a better understanding of, of what this whole question says about the nature of God, about the Father himself. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, if you would. You can find it on page 973 of your pew Bibles. Galatians chapter 2. I want you to see what's at stake in this question. What's at stake in the question, is Jesus the only way to God? Is Jesus the exclusive means to have access, to have relationship, to be accepted by God the Father? That, what's at stake in this question of whether salvation is in Christ alone? Look at the last verse of chapter 2, verse 21. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What he's talking about here, he's talking with some folks who think that, well, maybe there's salvation if we obey the law rigidly enough. Just right. We do the things the law says and then we can be saved. It's not in Christ alone. I mean, sure, Jesus plus us obeying all the law. What Paul asserts here, what Paul says is that, here's the deal, guys. God would be nothing more than a sadistic tyrant, a sadist, right? Somebody who takes joy and pain, finds pleasure in, in other people's um, 
discomfort and torture. God would be nothing more than a sadistic tyrant if he planned for his son to die a horrible death and hang on the cross knowing there were other legitimate paths to himself. Christ died for no purpose. If that path gets you to me. Paul says, if we could work our way to God, if we could clean up our lives, if we could just, you know, do a little bit better, what good was the death of Christ? It was of no purpose. See, if there were other means to the Father, if Islam and Judaism and and Buddhism and Hinduism and paganism, if they all led to the Father at some point, that would reveal something repugnant about God because he gave his only son to provide salvation for those who would trust in him. I would do anything to spare my kids pain. Like, you know those moments you see your kid in pain and you're like, oh, I wish I could be them right now. But this is saying, if there's all these paths, God's just saying, eh, go suffer, dude. Go suffer. And there's lots of other paths, too. You don't really need to suffer because everybody could just take these other, these other highways to me. No. But instead, the giving, of the, fun, of the, fa- the giving by the Father of the Son shows us that Jesus is the only way. Because God took great pleasure in his son. He was his beloved son. He wouldn't do that to his son if there were other paths. The giving of the son by the father shows us there was no other way. But do the scriptures make clear why Jesus is the only way? What what did he do? What happened in his life and death that that makes it so that he is the only solution to the problem, that he is the only means of salvation. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You can find this on page 966 of your pew Bibles. Second Corinthians chapter 5. <laughs> And look at verse 17 with me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake, He, talking about the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. Remember what our problem is. Our problem is our nature, our sin, right? And, and just notice a couple things that Paul teaches us here. Very simply, he says that God credited our sin, the problem, to Christ as if he had committed it. For our sake, he made him to be sin. If you want to think about it in terms of a bank ledger, our ledger was full of debt. And God says, nope, it's not your debt. It's Jesus' debt, even though he was sinless. He was pure. God credited our sin, the problem, to Christ as if he had committed it. And then Christ then bore the anger and the judgment of God, the penalty that sin deserved when he hung on the cross. And God credited the righteousness of Christ. The, the righteousness he demonstrated in his perfect sinless life to those of us who believe. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. He was sinless. He submitted to all the demands of the Father. He, he kept the law perfectly as he walked this earth. He was absolutely sinless. So that in him, in Christ, you and I might become the righteousness of God. That's a very different picture that you and I are the righteousness of God. A very different picture from what we read in Genesis 6-5 that every intentions of their heart was only evil continually. Right? Those are worlds apart. So what Paul teaches is that Jesus didn't come and then kind of like set things right and then say, hey fellas, hey ladies, uh, Go, go live a better life now. He gave us a whole new set of commands, new paths to follow. No, what, what Paul teaches is that we've been given new natures. We've been credited righteousness. We're set right with God. And so what we've seen this morning is that there is only one way to God. There is only one way to the Father, and that is the Christ of Christmas. There is no one and nothing like him, friend. But I, I know some of you, like the thoughts, kind of the, the turmoil going, going through you right now, you, you're struggling. Because you've heard all sorts of objections to this. I mean, you generally know that this is what Christianity teaches. Perhaps you've heard the story of, uh, of the six blind men who encountered a, an elephant for the first time. And, and as each one touched the elephant, he announces what he discovers about the elephant. And, and the first blind man goes up and, and touches the side of the elephant. And, and he declares how smooth an elephant is. And he says, an elephant's like a wall. Well, the, se the second uh, blind man can't believe what he's hearing and because the second blind man is touching the trunk of the elephant and he's saying how round an elephant is, like a snake. The, the third blind man quickly chimes in and says, what is going on here? And, and he's touching the tusk of the elephant. And he says, how sharp. The, the, an elephant is like a spear. It's not like a wall or a snake, guys. The fourth blind man puts his hand and he touches the leg of the elephant. And he just can't believe how tall it is. Just like a tree, an elephant's like a tree, he declares. 
fifth blind man is touching the ear of the elephant. How wide an elephant is, he declares to the others, just like a fan. And the sixth elephant is standing behind the elephant, touching the tail as it swings. And he says, how thin, he's just telling the other, the other guys how thin an elephant actually is. An elephant's just like a rope. And the, and the point of this is that they have this argument, each blind man thinking he knew all about the elephant just based on his own little experience of the elephant at that point. And then there's a bystander somewhere in the story says, no, 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 no. The elephant is a really big animal. You are all only touching one part of the animal. And yeah, you're describing that part really well, but you're only touching one part you got to put all these pieces together and, and then you have what an elephant is, is actually like. And, and the story is told to prove that, that Christianity or, or any other religion represents only a part of the truth about God. We're, we're describing it accurately insofar as we're describing this small part of God that we're talking about. Each religion has its own part, but it's all part of one whole, the great creator God. But let's stop and ask, what if the elephant speaks? What if the elephant tells these men what he's like? Because Christianity states so clearly that that humanity doesn't learn about God by bumping around in the dark and, and fumbling around. Indeed, we cannot learn about God that way. He must reveal himself to us. The elephant must tell us who he is and what he's like. God doesn't hide himself or stand by silently. God reveals who he is and what he desires in the person of Jesus Christ and in the scriptures. And the story would have us believe that, that we as Christians reject Islam or paganism or Buddhism or Hinduism because we don't really know what those religions are all about. And just a little more understanding and we would all have this enlightened bigger picture of, of what the elephant is, of who God is. So you're just kind of uninformed. But, but that's false. Because we, as the people of God, as Christians, reject anything other than Christianity, partly because we know that there are crucial elements of our faith that contradict elements of other faith, right? Like, the, the blind man couldn't have said, an elephant so small he fits in my hand, while the, uh, the other man is saying, like, I can't even reach the top of the elephant. Like, both couldn't be true at the same time. Right? But, but there are crucial elements of what the scriptures teach, of what Jesus reveals about himself that contradict everything else in other religions. Either Jesus is the Messiah or he's not. He can't be both the Messiah and not the Messiah. He either suffered on the cross for the sins of his people or he didn't suffer on the cross for the sins of his people. Can't, both can't be true at the same time. He either rose from the dead or he lay dead in the grave. Both can't be true. Salvation is found in him alone as we've seen very clearly in John 14, Acts 4. Or it's not. Both can't be true at the same time. It can't be both ways. 
There is nothing and no one like Jesus, like the Christ of Christmas. And his uniqueness has significant ramifications for our life. First friend, you must trust. You are commanded, you are called to trust in what God has done in Christ so that you might be saved. Saved from sin. Saved from the righteous wrath and anger of God. Saved from the punishment of God that sin deserves. Have you done that? Have you trusted in Christ alone? Or have you just been kind of trusting that you can kind of get your act together? You can clean it all up. You can set out on a better path tomorrow. Like New Year's resolution. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do better. Have you minimized sin and, and, and made it nothing more than a spiritual sprained ankle that you kind of hobble through life on, but you can get by on a sprained ankle? Maybe you've really been drawn to Jesus, but you're tempted to put him on par with the Buddha or Muhammad, and, and you've mixed and matched ideas. Well, friend, today, the scriptures we have seen call you to declare that Jesus is utterly unique and to place your faith and trust in him alone. You need to recognize the depth of of your sin, the grotesque and, and distorted nature of sin, and confess there's no one and nothing like Jesus. Second, Friend, brother, and sister in Christ, perhaps you've, you've felt your love growing a little cold for our Savior. Consider again. Meditate again on your great need apart from Christ. Again, this was no little nagging injury for which Christ gave himself. You were dead in sin, lost, without hope in this world, under condemnation. Object of God's wrath. And the Father graciously gave you new life by his spirit so that you could trust in his son and have affections for him. Christian, consider again your plight and consider again your savior and rejoice that no one and nothing is like Jesus. Finally, Christian friend, if salvation is found in no one else, and we've seen it very clearly, we must share this glorious message with every man, every woman, every child here in Syracuse, in our county, in this state, and beyond. People around us are perishing in their sin apart from Jesus. Here's it. Sometimes it doesn't look like it, does it? We know people, we work with people, we go to school with people, we have friends with people, and, and they are great. You know, they, they keep their yards really nice. They, they participate on the school board. They care for their elderly parents in a way that just makes you think, wow, that's, that's wonderful. And, and they may be adherents of another religion who seem to conduct their lives in a way that is above reproach. They are kind, caring, concerned people. You know what I'm talking about. 
Don't be deceived, friend. They are objects of God's wrath apart from trusting in Christ. God has placed them in our lives so that we can be messengers of his cure. We must tell them there is no one and nothing like Jesus. There is only one way to the Father, the Christ of Christmas. There is no one and nothing like Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you for showing yourself to us. For making yourself known to us in your word. For not standing by silently, not hiding yourself. And, and I want to thank you for most fully and clearly revealing yourself in your son, Jesus. We, we confess that apart from your gracious disclosure of who you are, we would be lost. Thank you. And we are grateful, Father, for your son Jesus. Because it's by him that you ransomed a people for yourself from every tribe and language and nation and people. And so we declare this morning, worthy is Jesus, the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is Jesus forever and ever and ever. I pray right now that by your spirit, you would give life to some within the sound of my voice so that they would bend their knee to Jesus, to trust him. I pray that you would drive away confusion and doubt and deception in their mind and in their heart. For the weary, Father, I pray you would show that your son Jesus is rest. For the slave, Father, I pray that you would show that Jesus is liberty and freedom. For the hurting, I pray that you would show your son as the healer. And for the downcast, pray that you would show your son Jesus as their only hope. And I also pray that you would enable us, your people, to... uh, joyfully worship you, to joyfully represent you, gladly live for you and declare you, devotedly give our lives to you. Grant this, I pray, in the name of Jesus, the name above all names. Amen.